you. Have you really? I've probably got about four speeding tickets for this, but that's all right. We'll take up another offering next week and <laughs> see if we can deal with that. I feel like a pop-up preacher. You know, you yeah, walk in the door, pop up, and then grab a coffee and then go. But it's good to be here. It really is. Thanks for the opportunity, Gab. Now, you've been in 1 Peter. Oh, that's good. <laughs> Just... At least I'm in the right church. <laughs> Just had to check that. Oh, we'll open up your Bibles if you've got them or your, your uh, smartphones or whatever you, you, you turn to when we read the Bible these days. Open up to, to Peter. Because I asked Gav where you got up to, where Anne finished, and I think he said somewhere in chapter 2 about verse 11 or 12. Anne, where were you? Last week? Okay, so I said to Gav, sort of, what's the passage for me? He said, you can pick whatever you want. So I read the rest of First Peter and I decided I'd speak on the last four chapters because, you know, <laughs> I might be late, but you're going to pay for it, all right? Because <laughs> when I read the last four chapters, I could not get over what I read. Like you've got four chapters, and I don't want to have a go at Peter, but there's one theme that just comes through so loud and clear. And he hammered it again and again and again. So I thought, I'm not going to just take one passage. So let's go back a, a bit, take a deep breath. We've, we all know what it's like to be out of place and to be the odd one out. I mean, we've all failed to get that email that told us about the dress code and we rolled up in jeans and everybody's wearing suits. Or we've all been overseas and we're battled with language problems or cultural problems. Uh, years ago, I went to visit my a great uncle's grave in a little village in the north of France it called Franvillers. Nobody in Franvillers speaks English. Uh, and there was a military grave somewhere there that I didn't know where it was. And so I had to try and ask, where is the cemetery? Do you know nobody could understand? Lynn was with me. She was the only one that understood me. And... In the end, I stopped a bloke on a tractor. It's a farming agrarian community. And I said to this bloke on the tractor, cemetery. How hard is that? <laughs> he just shook his head. And I thought, what am I going to do? I said, military cemetery. And he still didn't know. So then I went like this. And he drove off on his tractor. <laughs> And you realise what a problem it is when you're trying to communicate in another language, another culture. I eventually found the cemetery and I ask a Frenchman how you say cemetery and they say cemetery. How hard is that? Anyhow, in Peter, in the book of Peter, and I'm sure Anne explained all of this last week, we've got a group of people attempting to live out their faith in a foreign culture. But there's a twist to it that the foreign culture is not geographical, it's local. So here's these people who have a new identity in Christ. We call them Christians, they're followers of Jesus. They have a whole new world outlook because of Jesus and because of what God says. And out of the blue, that Peter says, you look like you are now strangers in a familiar land. Does that make sense? 
So they're not in another culture, they're in their own land, surrounded by familiar things, but they are strangers in a familiar place because now they see the world completely differently. Now just to warm us up for this, there's probably three ways in which we as Christians can deal with being strangers in our familiar circumstances. In other words, Christians in a world that doesn't know Jesus. The first one is we can escape from it. And I think there should be some stuff up behind me. Uh, escape is where we withdraw into our sort of safe, holy huddles and Christian enclaves and we have little contact with our broader world because of the fear that we're going to be tainted by it. Remember when the Jews were taken to Babylon? Their initial response was, we're not going to live in Babylon, we're going to live outside the city by the rivers of Babylon and sing the songs. And a false prophet came along and just said, by the way, you're only going to be here for a couple of years, so you live outside the city. Escapism leads to a us and them, good guy, bad guy approach. In fact, that's what led the famous Richard Dawkins, the atheist, to declare you don't have to know God to be good. Because Christians give this impression that we're the good guys and you're the bad guys. And Dawkins says that's ridiculous, and it is ridiculous. The second approach we can have trying to live in, in our world is to embrace it. This is the other end of the spectrum where we can easily drift into an uncritical embrace of our own cultural values where our lives and our ethics are not distinct in any way and our faith doesn't have any influence in public life. We just look and think and act like everybody else except we're busy on Sundays. That's what Christianity can often boil down to. Peter says that's not helpful. To either want to run away from it or to embrace it. He said there's a third way and that is to engage it. And so in verse 11... Of 1 Peter chapter 2, we read this. I think it's up here. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. So we're talking here to the Christians about how we live. But then he says, live such good lives amongst the pagans that even though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day that he visits. Now the famed Michael Frost, whose greatest claim to fame is that he lectured John Manning and Mark Ryan over there at Morling College. John Manning, uh, John Manning. <laughs> Mike Frost wrote a book and he said this. He said, the challenge for us as Christians is to live questionable lives. And I love that expression. What he means by that is, rather than escape from the world, rather than embrace the world, let's engage the world in a way that invites curiosity, invites questions. How do you figure out this mob? Wouldn't you love people to say, man, there's something about Glenn Osmond, I can't quite figure it out. That's inviting questions. What is it about these people? Man, I know they think that, but look at what they do. 
We don't particularly want them, but we can't live without them. <laughs> I had to take a funeral uh, last week. I got asked to go and visit a man who was dying and he lived for three more days after I visited him. That wasn't because I was visiting him, but he, 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 was, a, he was a very sick man. And uh, he had a wife and three grown-up daughters and it was a, was a lovely time, a great opportunity to, to be there. Then I got asked to take the funeral. So after I took the funeral, we went back to the Blackwood Bowling Club for something to eat and drink. And I saw a few blokes just standing out on the balcony, as blokes do. They got their beer and having a drink and having a talk. I thought, I'm just going to vaguely walk past them and to see what happens to them. So I walked past them and one of the blokes who looked like the sort of ringleader, he said, hey, uh, he said, I need to say something to you. He said, I need to let you know I'm not religious. I hate church and everything it stands for. And he said, as soon as you stood up this morning and declared you're a Baptist minister, he said, I wanted to hate you. He said, I had a problem, though, that as things went on, instead of hating you, I started to listen to you. And he said, even worse, you started to make sense when you talked about a God who I don't believe in. But here's the thing. I said, what did it? What did it? Was it? the way I was dressed. <laughs> he said, no, I'll tell you what it was. He said, I was waiting for you to whack us with the Bible. I said, well, it's kind of not my thing to whack people with the Bible. But I said, I'm not embarrassed by it either. I said, what you see is what you get. And he said, I've never seen that before. Here's a 70-year-old guy who's never seen a Christian who doesn't whack them but who loves them and is unashamed to speak about the Bible. And if he had stayed with me much longer, he would have found out there's a lot of things about me that are very similar to him. See, here's the heart of Peter, and, and we must understand this. Peter, in these last four chapters of this book, begs us to reclaim humility. I'm going to read a selection of verses from chapter 2, 3, 4 and 5 up here. I'm just going to read them straight through. Listen and see if you pick up the gist of them. I haven't selected them out. I could have read the whole four chapters. 2.13, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority. Chapter eight, uh, Verse 18 and 19, slaves, in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters not only to those who are good and considerate, but to those who are harsh. Chapter 3. Wives, in the same way, submit to your husbands. I think I'll read that again. Wives, in the same way, submit to your husbands. Verse 7. Oh, there is a bit more there. So that if they do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behaviour of their wives. Verse 7. Husbands. In the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives. Verse 8. Yeah, no, no, that, <laughs> that's an add-on. <laughs> Verse 8. 
Finally, all of you, be like-minded, sympathetic, love one another, be, ca- be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. Chapter 3, verse 15. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with, say it with me, gentleness and respect. This is not an opportunity for you to whack somebody. Chapter 4, verse 8. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sins. Do you know it's hard to hate somebody who loves you so much? The world wouldn't hate the church if we loved it in a way that they couldn't hate us. (laughs) Same with our neighbours or whoever it is. Look at chapter 5, verse 1. To the elders, he's getting really close to the church now, be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them. Listen, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but be examples to the flock. Don't lord it over. Lead humbly. Lead submissively. Chapter 5, verse 5, in the same way, those of you who are younger, submit to the older. All of you, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, because God opposes the proud, but shows favour to the humble. Chapter 5, verse 6, Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him, because he cares for you. Did you get it? Did did you get the rhythm of those chapters? I don't know if you're any different to me. I get it. I just don't want it. Like, Peter is calling me to a kind of lifestyle that I can see the sense of it when it benefits me, but it's very hard to accept when it doesn't benefit me. I mean, how do you submit to a government and oppose its unjust or oppressive or inhumane policies at the same time? Peter says, do it humbly. How do you work for a bad boss? Humbly. How do you advocate for the poor in a world obsessed with itself? Humbly. Don't set yourself up as somebody who's doing something. Just do it humbly and get on with it. No grandstanding. How do you differ with others on political issues or social issues? We discovered that when we tried to debate same-sex marriage. Man, it got ugly. How do you do that? Peter says, humbly. I could go on. Peter says, let it permeate every walk of life. I'm going to share a principle with you. It's called the yes but principle. And I know that it operates in your life because it operates in mine. You know, one of the things we teach our kids is not to hit their brothers or sisters, correct? Do they? Yep. So when uh, little Susie runs up to us and says, Billy, hit me, we go up to Billy and we say, Billy, I've told you not to hit your sister. And he goes, I know, but (laughs) she messed up my Lego. (laughs) She pulled my hair. 
You know the fascinating thing with that is? There's no attempt to deny it was wrong, but in this case, an exception had to be made. I know. I know I shouldn't have hit her. But she did that. And that constitutes permission. You know, I read Peter. He says the most outrageous things. Slaves, you're working for a master and he's a bad master. Submit to him. Be humble. Man, I I raise a thousand questions. Governments. Remember Paul's writing here to Christians who lived in Rome and the leader at the time was a bloke called Nero, one of the greatest tyrants of all history. He says, submit there. How does that work? Wives. Submit to your husbands. Do you know what? I'm sick of trying to make submission mean something it doesn't. It means submission. Because what it's talking about here is let's not get the Greek word and then say, righto, let's go into every walk of life and let's make it mean something it doesn't. What Peter is saying here is it's only when we learn submission, which is born out of humility, which just says, you know what, I just want to let my life and my love for Jesus and my walk with God permeate every relationship that I'm in. And if it gets messy, then we'll walk through it. I don't know how many times people have sat to, with me and just said, I don't get that whole thing about husbands and wives and like, like, how does it work? Who makes the decisions? And I say, work it out, but don't throw it out. Does that make sense to you? Work out what humility looks like as a wife and as a husband. But don't throw out the principle. You know, you get a very strong-willed wife and a, a husband who's very melancholic and doesn't really know how to make a decision you know, we'll work it out humbly together. Instead of getting caught up on some book that's been written about it. Hear what Paul is, uh, Peter rather is saying. There are exceptions to why you won't want to live humbly. Like the time that Peter cut off the ear of the soldier. Wasn't that terrific? <laughs> well, see, I'm a bit of an ear lopper. I don't, I don't mind lopping ears. <laughs> that, that's me. I'm a competitive beast. If I was in the garden, I would have lopped both of them off. <laughs> that's just me. And Jesus turns to Peter and says, Peter, good shop, man, but that's not how the way it works. <laughs> You've been with me all these years and you don't know that's not how it works. Can you see the difference between this now, between what Peter was? See, Peter was a yes, but man back then, but now he realises humility is the way. Listen, humility has been the greatest evangelistic tool of the church in 2,000 years. You need to let that sink in. We spend all of our time these days at conferences and seminars about how to reach our world, how to do church, how to be the most amazing leaders, how to run programs, what's going to connect with our community. Do you know what history proves? Is that humility amongst God's people has been the most effective evangelistic tool in 2,000 years. Funny about that because Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, you are the what? Salt. What's salt do? 
permeates. What's light do? Permeates darkness. Jesus, that's, that's what you're called to be. Don't stick it under a rock because the world needs it. But don't think you are the rock. Listen, the church was at its best when, through humility, it took on the might of Rome. And the church was at its worst when, prior to the Reformation, it ruled the world through ecclesiastical and political arrogance. Funny about that, isn't it? When it got authority, it misused it. When it didn't have it, it lived humbly. Jesus could have usurped political arrogance at any time of his ministry. And yet at the critical time when he was being tried, he remained silent. And his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension has changed the world. Now just in case you're wondering, the suggestion that Peter would make here or the teaching he gives us is not that we ignore abuses of power or that we somehow collude with injustice or stupidity because when you read the Bible from front to back, it makes it clear that things like oppression and exploitation and injustice need to be spoken out by God's people. But what we need to understand is that Peter is urging us to live a redemptive life from within a certain framework. The whole word redemption is about buying back. Peter wants to see, to buy back, if you like, this whole notion of living humbly within a framework of the culture in which we find ourselves. See, the Christian community was never established to be a revolutionary political power. That wasn't the goal of Jesus coming into the world. And as Aliens in this kind of world, our goal is not the conquering of our culture or some forceful imposition of our way of life like we're some colonial power. That's not the way we operate. The focus is on living ordinary, everyday ways and allowing faith and justice and rightness to permeate. I'm going to sum this up in just a moment. But I want to quote to you something from Mark Sayers who wrote a book called Strange Days. He calls what I'm talking about the roar of quiet living. I love that expression, don't you? The roar of quiet living. He says, I believe that though our current global movement, talking about the church, is in so many ways different from the early churches, this kind of life is the way forward. To live ordinarily and quietly, work with our hands, embrace the rhythms and realities of daily life is seemingly mundane. However, it is actually how we engage in the great spiritual battle against the flesh and the powers and principalities. One could be fooled by such a quiet life, yet when tuned to a heavenly frequency such a life resounds with a mighty roar 
For it is a call to live as the church, a creative minority who live in the world but experience it in a profoundly different way, a way that is shaped by redemptive dislocation. Boy, that's a good term. Can't talk about that over lunch. Redemptive dislocation. People of the kingdom of God living in a world that doesn't want to know God and God redeems us because of our dislocation to live very differently so the world gets a view that there's a different world than just the one we see and hear and observe and get caught into all around us. What does it look like to submit to authority? Slaves to masters, wives to husbands, husbands do likewise. What does it look like for Christians to be humble in the midst of suffering? For elders not to lord it over and for younger to submit to the older. Well, how does an ear-lopping zealot become a gracious statesman who can help us thrive in an alien culture? Well, Peter came to understand that wherever you find yourself, and I just do the brush right around this morning, Wherever you are, in society or in work or in marriage or in the church or in your neighbourhood, Peter says, let there be the roar of quiet living. Remember I said before, many of the Jews wanted to live outside of Jerusalem. It looked such a holy option. We're not going to get tainted by Babylon. Jeremiah comes along and God said, tell these people this. Go into the city and build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I've carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, so you too will prosper. Funny, isn't it? Don't you find it funny? God says, you are the people I want to permeate our society. And we're sitting there thinking, oh man, it's a lost cause. What could we do? Do we need some other outreach program? Do we need this or that or so? Jesus says, get out there and just live this roar of quiet living. Which sounds funny coming from me because I'm never quiet. (laughs) And the best way to engage Our culture isn't to accommodate it or to withdraw from it, but to bless it. You can go from here this morning as a quiet blessing to your neighbours and to this church and to your workplace and wherever it is, this roar of daily quiet living. Did anybody ever see the miniseries Band of Brothers? Fantastic. It's about a, a bunch of paratroopers in the Second World War and there's a scene in which uh, Lieutenant Richard Winters is about to lead his troops to parachute in what turned out to be the beginning of the Battle of the Bulge, a very significant battle. Uh, the interesting part about it is the soldiers were completely surrounded by the Germans in Boulogne and this is in January 1945 and just before Winters was about to take his bunch of paratroopers and, and sort of uh, go into the middle of that, that battlefield in Boulogne a soldier pulls him aside and looks at him and says ominously it looks like you guys are going to be surrounded and Winters without hesitation says to him 
We're paratroopers, Lieutenant. We're supposed to be surrounded. I love that. That's why you send paratroopers in. Because there's no other way in. Everybody's surrounded, so you drop some paratroopers in from above. Do you know what God's saying? We're supposed to be surrounded. It's supposed to look hopeless. And I drop you right in the middle of that workplace. I drop you right in the middle of that mess. Drop you right in the middle of that community. And I want you to live it out. The, the roar of quiet living. Sometimes Jesus said, people will see your good deeds and they'll glorify your Father in heaven. Other times people will see what you do and they'll persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil things because of you. Have a look at this. Eugene Cho is the pastor of a church in Seattle and he founded an organisation called One Day's Wages. He says something that I can relate to. He said, we long for justice to run like a mighty river but often it begins with a trickle. Be that trickle. Seek justice, love kindness, and walk humbly. And I'll finish just by reading what Peter wrote in 1 Peter 2 and verse 20. If you do suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin, no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness and by his wounds you have been healed you were like sheep going astray but now you've returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls do you know if I could sum up what Peter's been trying to say it'd be simply this Lord have mercy on us and let us learn humility especially today Let's pray. Father, every one of us knows that we are living in very complex times. We understand the drift of culture today. We understand all the forces that are at work trying to, in some ways, manipulate that culture and change it and set it in a direction that when we look at it, in some ways is terrifying. But Father, we've come this morning and Peter, this zealous disciple, this one who said to Jesus, though everybody else deserts you, I won't. And he did. This one who thought that when the soldiers came, he could take them on one at a time and he couldn't. And somehow you changed him through the death of your son 
as he saw and observed the humility and the submission and the roar of the quiet life of Jesus. It changed him. Father, I pray that you'd drop us in to places where we're surrounded. Help us to go in as people who don't need to grandstand. We don't need to shout. We don't need to make enemies. We don't need to whack people. Help us to go with that humility that would seek the best for the people you put us amongst and that they would be glad to know that although they don't know everything about us, they know that we live in a way that is honouring to you and for the well-being of those around us. Father, thank you for this this morning. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you not only for his example, but for the way he died to bring us to him that we might walk with him and like him. So we say thank you and ask for your grace to help us in Jesus' name.